HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. Greenhorns, this is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers, and of course, that means that we are talking about farming, and I am trying to find the name of my radio guest (laughs) on my email, which is embarrassing, but that is the life that I am living. Come here, little friend. Don't run from me. Wait a minute, how about I just ask my guest? Hey, guest, who are you? Hi, uh, Mark Millitzer. How oh, are you hi, doing? Hi, Mark, from Tree of Life. In, are you in Iowa or are you in Wisconsin? Southwest Wisconsin. Southwest Wisconsin. It was so nice to meet you the other day at the Cincinnati Mound in the nunnery or the yeah. monastery or the sister house. I think it's like a retirement home for sisters. Yeah, beautiful place. Um, Will you start off just introducing yourself and your farm operation and the region in which you live? Okay. um, My name is Mark Millitzer, and uh, my farm is Tree of Life Gardens. Um, I've been doing it for seven years, and um, I love it. I love what I do for a living. It's... um, it, it definitely is a lifestyle. Do you want to describe a little bit your operation and kind of what the other local food scene is around you or kind of young farmer scene and what the conventional landscape of agriculture is in the areas around your farm? Okay. Um, yeah, well, uh, we have a five-acre vegetable farm here, and I rent uh between two and seven or ten acres down the road depending on the year uh we grow um a lot of different stuff because we do a csa uh as well as i i love to specialize in mushrooms um uh we've been getting into a lot of uh uh salad greens lately too uh and we um we take our stuff to farmers markets uh i go all the way to chicago area um oak park illinois um rockford so th- those two are about an hour and a half to three and a half hours away from my farm um we also uh sell locally uh in the dubuque iowa area that's right across the river uh, so that's like 20 minutes away and um 
we we do a, <clears throat> a CSA and uh, and sell to local grocery stores, co-ops, restaurants, stuff like that. Um, uh, surrounding me is um, basically industrial agriculture all around me. Uh, big corn and soybean fields. Um, the the people here uh, locally don't know as much about eating organic or local uh, as much as just price shopping at Walmart. But um, that's why I end up traveling so far, three and a half hours away, to sell most of my vegetables. Uh, just um, so far, it hasn't worked out in this area, but that's changing. Um, we we have a great um, extension service here, and Carolyn Grace uh, is uh, leading that and really um, breaking into the local foods movement and talking to all the institutions and uh, everybody at the restaurants, uh, trying to uh, connect farmers to these places, figure out how we can put this all together. So, um, you know, for the most part, uh, I've been doing that. I've also uh, sold to Organic Valley. Um, they uh, have a produce pool, and that's about an hour and a half north of me. It's mostly Amish growers doing it all by hand. And uh, uh, we kind of broke in because we have a machine to harvest root crops, and so that kind of gives us an edge. Um, so I, I've done some wholesaling to them too, but it it's, hasn't been as great as the, the retail sales, you know. So I love it how you're able to get in on the Amish game because you have a root harvesting equipment. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not cultivating with tractors or, or harvesting with equipment. So um, just having that stuff really um, helps us, you know, get, get things done faster, that's for sure, you know. Let's talk a little bit about land access, um, your own personal land access story, um, but also kind of what is the character of the land access drama in your neck of the woods? Like, what are the young farmers around you facing uh, in terms of farmland prices? Who are you competing with? How are people managing to navigate? Yeah. Um, well, uh, it, it is pretty darn difficult for somebody to get in uh, to actually farming vegetables around here just because the land prices seem to be so expensive. You know, right now, I mean, I've, I've heard uh, $10,000 an acre is like a normal thing to say. Um, I've heard $14,000 or more in Iowa. Um, so, uh, you know, it's pretty cost prohibitive. Uh, that's why I'm renting down the road, and I have a small uh, vegetable farm here. We we just sort of, like, bumped into this. It was the cheapest farm we could find with buildings and a well um, at the time. And, uh, you know, like a lot of, a lot of people are renting land, um, but there isn't a lot of vegetable farmers around here. Um, it, it's pretty rare. I, I know of three other, like, substantial uh, farms in, in my zone, you know, like a 100-mile radius. Most of them are, are north of us. Like, up in Viroqua, which is an hour and a half north of me, is really, like, the hub of vegetable farming of this area, full of Amish. And up there, um, it is way cheaper to buy land, like maybe 4,000 an acre or something. Um, if you go to, like, poor area of Hillsborough. Uh, 
So that's where the hub is because that's where the land is cheap. In the end, that's where Organic Valley is. So they all have a place to sell it. Um, or down where I'm at, it can be pretty difficult because difficult to, to sell vegetables and then, yeah, expensive to even get in on it. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big mortgage when you're talking uh, 10000 an acre, you know. It seems to me that you have to have uh, quite a few acres of vegetables to be able to pull off paying the bills, you know. Well, and I just come over from the Driftless and doing the video shoots for the Hourland Agroforestry episode, and so I just spent a lot of time talking about ge- geology with all the agroforestry peeps and them explaining to me how and why the 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 history of that place, the geological history of the northern part of the Midwest made it more cheaper land, more yep. family scale, more whoopy swoopy topography, and um, therefore really good habitats for the organic movement to proceed and for or- companies like Organic Valley to become established and crucial and for the kinds of cooperation that they offer to be really appropriate to the needs of growers, whereas your closer flatlands closer to the empire of Monsanto export and therefore higher land prices, larger farms, more consolidation, and um, higher prices. Right, yeah. They have such small plots on the top of the hills or in the valleys up north of me. They really have to squeeze as much as they can out of these little pieces of land. And so I guess, yeah, vegetable farming makes sense more up there. We're here. It's just open field, you know, to spray it all. <laughs> so, yeah, it makes it, makes it uh, a lot different. Well, think about, um, you, in answering the next couple questions, think about whatever stuff you want to make sure to get across, uh, that you bend, the, bend my question in order to get it across, because right. um, wh- one, of the, one of the questions I had in your, in your talk at the Cincinnati Mound, um, you were talking a lot about, uh, you know, moving between scales and viability between scales and, you know, having spent seven years and saying things like lifestyle makes me want to ask you questions about um, farm viability and profitability. Sure. Uh, And maybe you want to talk about that or maybe you want to talk about something else and I'm going to let you do what you want. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, um... Well, yeah, I've been doing it for seven years, <clears throat> and I've made a lot of mistakes, and I, I fell into it. You see, I like, I was a glass blower, uh, an artist, and I was in the uh, permaculture and organics and all that. And um, so, what I was looking for when we bought this piece of land was just a place to do permaculture and live uh, more of a homestead lifestyle. And what occurred was. Um, I, I realized more and more how bad uh, for my health glass blowing was. Uh, when you are uh, using these colors, these colors have heavy metals, and these metals like atomize into the air, and you just cannot help but absorb heavy metals. And I, I was starting to get sick from it. And so what I did was, was I, I got way more into gardening, and about the same time serendipity happened, uh, they said there was a recession going on. 
And overnight, it was like people stopped buying $120 marbles from me. Like, I, I was going to Farmer's Market already, selling these, these uh, you know, glass jewelry, marbles. And I'm looking around at me going, how do all these people make money off these vegetables? It doesn't make sense to me. And, like, I had a really big garden, and I needed to make a living, so I brought that stuff to my table instead of the glass. And I could not believe how much easier it was to sell vegetables because everybody knows what to do with them. You don't have to sell yourself as an artist or this image so much. I mean, there, are, there is marketing in vegetables, that's for sure. But um, So I sort of fell into it, and I did not know anything about what I was doing. Um, I, I took a course at UW-Madison in um, market gardening. It was just a three-day course, but that... Like showing me how to expand my operation, how to you know do large scale irrigation, put things in rows, and um, less I guess less permaculture and more like you know row it out. But it but it you know like the first uh, thing they say you do in permaculture is uh, attain a yield, and that's what I was going for attaining a yield on this farm, and um, I guess uh, it, it just you know it just snowballed from there. Uh, into a pretty big thing. I I, uh, I had heard about CSAs. And I Remind me again, the acreage you're saying snowballing from glass blowing permaculture into production ag. Can you put a little number on your acreage? Oh, yeah, probably like eighth of an acre of vegetables. And then uh, within two years, we were using um, all three acres of usable land on my farm. And uh, seven years um, since the beginning now, uh, we're up to, to ten and a half acres of vegetables. So, you have ten and a half acres in production. Yes. Take that, hippie haters! Only <laughs> scale from. <laughs> so you know, yeah, I mean, it's possible. Um, it, it it has been difficult to make a living at it, uh, but that's pretty much, I think, my own fault. Just. Um, like I, like I said, I fell into it. So, like, what I always tell people to do if they're really looking into this as a career is to go work on other farms and see how everybody else is doing it and get as much education and actual, um, you know, physical activity in, you know, th- this as you can. Um, because, like, I did the exact opposite. I made every rookie mistake along the way that I probably could. And then, you know, you get, you're young, and uh, young males have this problem where they have all these big ideas and they go for them, and I did. I tried everything. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it wasn't easy. Um, I found that retail sales were the best for me and uh, farmers markets and in Chicago area. I like the CSA thing, um, and it really helped me get started. But um, I, I'm kind of I'm mostly running it on my own right now, and the logistics of uh, talking to all these CSA members, responding to them, making a newsletter, and all that, it's, it's way too much for me. I love the simplicity of going to farmers market and uh, bringing what I have and selling out, knowing that that works. Um, so I'm getting to the point now where I finally figured out what I'm really good at growing and what I have the equipment to do and, uh, and, and what, what sells really well for me. Um, and it's starting to work out now. Um, I'm, I'm not quite over the hump yet, but I think next year I probably will be. I've been saying that for a few years, but I see it now. I see the light. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah, uh, that's why we really got into mushrooms. Um, like when I first started, I was like, yeah, I'm going to grow purple broccoli and uh, Romanesco and all these crazy things. And I realized that uh, everybody knows what to do with that, especially in, in uh, my Midwest meat and potatoes area. And so um, I found that staple crops uh, were the best to bring people into the booth. And then uh, we have a variety of other things. Um, so, like, now we're growing a lot of different winter storage radishes, and I was bringing all these black Spanish radishes and beauty heart, like watermelon radishes, and huge radishes to market that are, like, totally different than what people are used to. But because I have the staples at my booth, you know, they're coming in because um, they, like, they love celery and my lettuce mix. But then uh, we talk to them about the different flavors of the radishes, and boom, those are all gone, too. So, um there's something to be said about like uh, hitting this medium ground where you can you know please everybody, but then also bring in your your specialty things. And that's why I got into mushrooms so much is uh, is so unique. People know mostly about mushrooms, and you know they they love them already. But there's not many farmers doing it, so that that has really helped us become unique. Um, I also love like. So- yeah. So this is really great. I mean, I'm learning so much about weaning people into weirdo vegetables. And, uh, you know, one thing it sounds like is that your customer base is actively evolving, like, underneath your nose, and you're tracking their evolution and trying to match your, you know, desire to grow weird vegetables. Um, there's an awesome study that was done by the Leopold Center in Iowa that talked about how many jobs would be created and how much wealth would be created if instead of importing all of the vegetables from California, where, P.S., there's a huge effing drought, um, the Midwest were to grow its own damn vegetables, and how many hundreds of millions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of jobs just vegetable self-sufficiency would mean for the Midwest. And I wondered if you could reflect a little about that study and just about kind of how the local foods movement in the Midwest has changed and what the scene is kind of headed towards and what, you know, and from the perspective of people who potentially moved to the coast and found themselves in an overpriced, rent-too-high, job-too-low situation and might consider going back uh, to the Midwest to start a farm, which is frankly the great number of those kinds of people is who I took hanging out with in, um, when I was on that recent trip. I was like, wow, I'm meeting all these people that I used to know in Portland, Oregon, and Maine, and in Brooklyn. And uh, Anyway, I'm going to stop asking the question so you can answer it. Yeah. Let me see if I can remember. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I agree. I have, you know, I've had... Lots of friends that went out west or out east, and they, um, you know, to live their lives, and and then they um, they're starting to come back. Uh, there's something about um, the heartland, you know, where everybody's everybody's got a big heart in the Midwest, um, and yeah, uh, I have seen the evolution of uh, food around here for sure. I guess in the last few years, I mean, it took us um, like three years of bringing oyster mushrooms to market before. Everybody just, like, caught on, and now it's just sold out. Um, uh, and you're right, yeah, like, I've seen these, these people evolve in their food. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing 
the way, um, you know, like it, it can catch on. And uh, it, in this area, I... You know, like everything trickles in from the West Coast, it seems like. And right now, um, local is actually like a buzzword around here. And people are really starting to talk about it and have um, meetings on local food. And uh, like we were both at Cincinnati Mound the other day, and the sisters are actually talking about starting to grow all their food again, you know. And that's a conversation you hear a lot of people um, starting, uh, actually, just earlier today, I was at the Dubuque Rescue Mission in Dubuque, Iowa, talking to Ashley Nysis, um, and she is the, um, the... Who's like the, an angel person. She's like an angel, you're right, yeah. And she's like leading this, um, this movement in Dubuque uh, to feed not only the hungry, but to just spread the knowledge of local food all over uh, this area. Um, it's, it's just amazing what they're up to there, and um, uh, it's, it's just a little incubator. Like, you know, you, you hear about everything happening on the West Coast and how uh, they've got food growing in the cities on the rooftops. and um, that, Those conversations are just starting here. So, like, to get in on the ground floor of this, I mean, you know, somebody like me who I just fell into this, is act, I was told earlier today I'm an expert uh, and, you know, it never dawned on me, uh, you know, in my wildest dreams, I would be an extra of vegetable farming. I just love what, you know, I'm doing here. But um, it, it is, it, there's opportunities around this area just because it's, it's not big yet. It's just starting, you know. It's great. So, uh, Boom, get in on the ground floor. Yeah. <laughs> Come on to the Midwest and let's grow some food because we need it. Uh, there's, we do not need uh, vegetables trucked thousands of miles, you know. And, uh, like, they, uh, there is something very special about um, frosted vegetables, too. Like, if you have a carrot that got a frost on it before it was harvested in the Midwest, that thing is sweet. You know, like, like Elliot Coleman from the Hoop House in the Middle of Winter Sweet. And, uh, you know, you get a carrot shipped from California, and it, it was warm the whole time. That thing is just the regular carrot. And the same thing goes for cabbage and kohlrabi and um, uh, radishes and beets. They all just get better. And uh, it, it, I don't think that is caught on yet, how special Midwest vegetables are. Well, and, you know, and then also because of the glaciation, I mean, you guys, I was in that produce section of the Dubuque Food Co-op and, you know, checking every, all the babies out and really just noticing a really high, you know, that kind of like mineral quality that vegetables get. And one right. thing I've been learning a lot about in California is the depletion, the mineral depletion of the land that's just, you know, lettuce, 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 and um, a lot of irrigated water. And a lot of you know input substance, a lot of input mm-hmm. such that the land itself um, has been mistreated and is and is not going to produce that same beautiful mineral quality in the vegetables. Right. Yeah, they're wearing it out. And um, anyway, well, it is special. I that, sometimes uh, go off on these tangents, and then there I am on the end of a tangent, forgetting yeah, what we're talking about. I understand. About. Do you have any other recommendations for people who are thinking about? Rejoining the Midwestern Food Revolution or comments that you want to get in before we end our interview? Well, um, experience, you know, uh, getting some experience uh, is, is number one, as I stated before. Um, I don't know if I could definitely say there was any special niche 
around here, um, except to just get into a really good farmer's market and uh, uh, to, to uh, display yourself well. Um, I see so many farmers that come to the markets uh, in the Chicago area dirty with dirty produce and, you know, old crates as their displays, and it just kind of looks uh, icky, you know, and um, they're not doing well. I see them sitting there not selling their food, and um, if you, if you want to sell some food, make it look clean. Like, people come to my booth, and they're like, whoa, you have the most beautiful stand here at Farmer's Market. Like, that's a normal thing I hear at my booth. They're like, you have the cleanest produce I have seen, and I don't think I'm really doing too too much. I'm not going overboard. We're just we just you know come with a nice clean display and uh, clean food, and we keep it that way. You know, um, so you know marketing yourself. I mean, it's not like marketing art, but it is it is special to market vegetables. So get into it. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, well, you 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 heard it here first. Wait a minute, he's got some more comments. Oh, I'm good. Um, you know, like, um, I, I can't say enough about how much of a struggle it was to get to this point. And, um, you know, dig your heels in deep and make it work, because uh, there, there's something big going on here uh, in vegetable farming and in local food production in general. So if you can dig your heels in deep, I think it's going to work, you know, for anybody who, who can, uh, has a green thumb. So it's been a pleasure talking to you today, for real. I really appreciate <laughs> being on the radio. <laughs> it's a huge pleasure talking to you. Yeah. And um, I hope that we continue the conversation across these big distances, and I hope that um, next time we talk there's six or seven other young greenhorns in your, in your 100-mile zone there. I hope so. You know, uh, maybe I'll help train them. Send them my way. <laughs> I'm not afraid of the competition. Pick them out for apprenticeships. Tree right. of Life Farm. And everybody else, listen, we've got a lot of big stuff coming up here in Greenhorn's world. We've got the Almanac coming again. We have a deadline in February for Almanac submissions. We have a bunch of new music up now. The Grange Future album is live on Etsy. We have market sales going at the Boston Public Market all the way through Christmas, selling the goods that we ship by sailboat from Maine. We're selling merchandise. We have beautiful new organic long sleeve T-shirts with seeds on them, and they're really nice gifts that you could give or tell someone else to give it to you because they probably don't know how to give you a good gift. And frankly, Greenhorns has to raise some money, and we are selling stuff. So... Clickety-clack, do your holiday shopping while there's some jangle in your agrarian pocket to support your agrarian cultural and media organization called the Greenhorns. Thank you, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 
Have you listened to A Taste of the Past? It's a show devoted to connecting our current food world with its storied past. Host and culinary historian Linda Palaccio welcomes chefs, scientists, authors, scholars, and revolutionaries into the studio to discuss food culture and history from around the globe. Have you seen the culture of food change over the past 25, 30 years? It's been incredible. Linda covers content ranging from the history of black chefs in the White House to behavioral psychology and the evolution of Italian food in America. You can listen to A Taste of the Past anytime on HeritageRadioNetwork.org or on iTunes and Stitcher.